John chapter 20, beginning at verse 19, and we're going to read through to the end. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. People can make all kinds of claims, and whether they're true or they're false, it doesn't really matter. There is a member of our family uh, who claims that in some way we are related to one of Henry VIII's wives. Now, I've never done the work on that. I've never looked at the information on that. And I don't really mind about that either way. So I haven't really considered whether that claim is true or false. Because although it might give me something to talk about at the start of the sermon, apart from that, it really doesn't matter very much. But there are things in life that really matter whether they are true or false because of the implications for our lives. When you go and see the doctor and they share with you the result of the blood test for the diagnosis you're wondering about, it matters, the result, because it has a big effect for our lives, doesn't it? And this morning, as we look together at John's Gospel... And as we consider in these last two chapters of the book, the amazing and life-changing claim that Jesus Christ is alive, one of the things that particularly comes out to us in our passage this morning is that the resurrection of Jesus isn't just true, because it is, but it also has massive implications for our lives. Last week, as we looked at those first two accounts of the resurrection and the arrival of Mary uh, and then Peter and John there at the tomb. We spent some time thinking about the 
historicity, the reliability of the claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. If you have questions about that, maybe jump on our website, listen to last week, or come and speak to me. There's loads of resources I could give to you to think further about that. If you're interested on whether this really happened and you want to weigh up the evidence. But this morning, the particular focus of the passage that we're going to look at, and where we're really going to focus our time, is on the implications of the resurrection for our lives here and now. That is what we're going to focus on. And that's a key point for many people, because many people may not dispute the possibility that Christ rose from the dead, but they don't want to look further into it. They don't want to dig into it. And it's a bit like me with the family tree. They think, well, it doesn't really matter either way or not. With God's help this morning, as we look together at God's inspired word, my prayer for us all is that we would see that it really, really, really does matter whether Jesus rose from the dead. And John is going to show us that as he takes us through what is the most extended account of the resurrection in all the four Gospels by focusing in on the way in which the resurrection changes people. The way in which meeting with the risen Lord Jesus and the realization that he is not dead, he is alive, leads to massive changes. Now, we got a hint of that last week when we saw Mary, because if you remember last week, Mary went into that graveyard grieving and she left rejoicing. But in our passage this week, we get that same pattern of a transformation in the disciples and then in one disciple called Thomas. And it's all there here, it's all here to say to us, the resurrection really matters because the implications are life-changing. And that's how we're going to focus our time together. As we look together at John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. And we're going to see three changes. Uh, Two of the changes, the first two are in the interaction between Jesus and some of the disciples in verses 19 to 23. And then the third one is in interaction between Jesus and Thomas there in verses 24. And we'll go right down to the comments on it in verse 31. So the first way in which the resurrection changes us is this. It moves us from fear to joy. The resurrection changes us from fear to joy. And here we're going to focus in on verses 19 and 20. And as we pick things up in verse 19, we are there on that first same resurrection Sunday where we were last week. So we're still on that first morning when Jesus, well, first day, I should say, when Jesus has risen from the dead. He has appeared to, uh, there to Mary. Uh, and now as we go through the day, we find on the evening of that very same first day of the week, the disciples are there meeting together as the Lord's people. And just before we move on and see what happens as Jesus comes to them, It's just important to note here, and sometimes it's important just to pick out little things. In in verse 19, notice they are meeting together on what is described as that first day of the week. And in doing so, the followers of Jesus are beginning what will become the pattern that we follow today as God's people. That they meet together as the people on this first day of the week because this is the day in which Jesus rose from the dead. And in that way, They are following both the creation pattern of working for six days and then resting for the one day, 
But also we're seeing that the Jewish Sabbath is moving from the Old Testament to a Christian Sabbath, there from the Saturday moving to the Sunday. And that's why we meet as the Lord's people today. It's not just because it's convenient. It's not just because um, it just works for everyone's diaries. It is because we are following that creation pattern of six days of labor and one day of rest. And the day we are meeting is the day of Christ's resurrection. This is the Christian Sabbath day in that sense. And so as we see the disciples there, beginning that pattern of meeting together on that first day of the week, they are afraid. Now, why are they afraid? Well, we're told in verse 19, they're afraid for fear of the Jews. And they are so afraid that the doors are locked in the room in which they're meeting. Now, they have good reasons to be afraid because the Jewish leaders have just put their, their own leader to death. And so they were probably concerned they might be next on the target list for the authorities. But locked doors cannot stop the Lord Jesus from coming to them. And so we read there wonderfully at the end of verse 19, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now that welcome, that that greeting of the Lord Jesus is significant. It is used three times in this passage in verse 19, verse 21, and in verse 26. And Jesus only uses this greeting, peace be with you, following his resurrection. Doesn't say it before, but he says it following his resurrection. Because what it signals and points to is the great gift of peace that flows from his death and resurrection. And it's a huge thing for Christ to say this because it has massive implications for all who believe today. It means that Jesus' sacrifice has brought about a great reconciliation between mankind and God's. That is the single biggest human need because of our sin. Such that any who will believe can know this peace. Now there are times when we can think far too lightly of our wrongdoing. You know, we can think about sin and wrongdoing as if it were, you know, a negative mark on a behavior chart for a child at home or at school, and just that. Or, or, or perhaps a, a kind of indulgence that, Apple, that adults enjoy, you know, the favorite chocolate bar is eaten at the end of the day outside of your fasting window in that sense. It's a bit like that, is it? Well, it's not, is it? Our sin, the things that separate us from God, our wrongdoing, well, our sin is like a declaration of war against God. It is a rejection of his authority, a rejection of his good law given for our good and of his right to govern our lives. And our sin means that whoever we are, whatever our accomplishments and however kind we might be, We are, because of our sin, the Bible tells us, an enemy of God. And so, when Jesus speaks those four words, peace be with you, that is so much more than just a kind greeting to friends. In those words, he is telling us that for those who believe in his name, his death has brought about real forgiveness and real reconciliation with God. 
And friends, that forgiveness and reconciliation came about at a great cost. And the Lord Jesus reminds them of that because look at verse 20. After he had said this, peace be with you, John's linking the two. He showed them his hands and he showed them his side. Why is he doing that? Because he is reminding them that it was through his death as a sacrifice in our place that we can be forgiven. Isaiah 53 and verse 5 links the suffering of the Lord Jesus with the privilege that comes to us of this peace. We read, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, both words for sin. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Do you see the connection? The wounded Savior is the one who brings peace. Peace with God. And that is Christ's gift to all who believe. And having heard Jesus speak those four words, and having seen Jesus' body there with the marks of his suffering, that gives Jesus' followers joy. That's how they move, from fear to joy. But of course, it's more than that, isn't it? Because at the end of verse 20, it's not just that they're joyful, is it? Look down at how it's described. The disciples were overjoyed when they had seen the Lord. That, that, that's a kind of word that communicates the kind of joy that, I mean, if it's not, not too light to say it, the kind of joy that a young child feels on the occasion of their birthday where they've got the gift they've been waiting for for almost a year. It's the kind of joy that an adult might feel when you see again a, a soulmate you have not seen for such a long time. Except it's even more than that, isn't it? Because their fear was fading away because they had come to know peace with God. And peace with God now is this source of a new, deep and lasting joy that comes from knowing that you have a clear conscience. Their fear is crowded out with the peace that Christ brings so that they would experience a new emotion of true and lasting, real joy. Friends, if your life is like mine, and I'm sure it is in many ways, there are times when things can happen in our lives that make it hard to know that joy, aren't there? Our joy can be sapped away slowly by the grind of daily hardship, of living life in a world that is both glorious, because it's been made by God, but also broken and fallen. And it saps your joy, doesn't it? The grind. Or maybe it's not the grind. Maybe it's the big event that that doesn't just sap your joy. It crushes your joy. It steals your joy and takes it away. Major disappointment. Hard news. And the more I go on as a Christian, the more I am reminded that I need to keep going back to dwell on the wonder of a clear conscience and peace with God. So that that joy can be restored that comes from knowing today and every day, by faith, that is me.
And brother or sister, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, that is you. We need to remind ourselves of the great declaration that Paul in Romans 5 puts there in terms of a fact when he says, since then we have been justified by faith, past tense, we have peace with God, accomplished, done, finished, settled. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. However I feel, whatever happens in the day, and hard things happen, joy-sapping things happen, you have peace with God through Jesus Christ if you have faith in the one who has died and has risen for your forgiveness. Peace be with you, Jesus says. And that is our privilege if we know Jesus Christ. That Jesus moves the disciples from fear to joy through his peace. But then secondly, we see that another way the resurrection changes us is by moving us from being followers of Christ to being his ambassadors. And here we look down together at verses 21 to 23. Because I said there were two elements to this encounter with the disciples. Uh, One movement is that movement from fear to joy, and the second movement is a movement from being a follower to being an ambassador, where Jesus commissions them, and we see him do that um, in verses uh, 21 through to 23. And we're going to move around those verses a bit. We're going to start in verse 22 and see that, that Jesus breathes on his disciples, verse 22, and says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And we'll start there because that's a verse that has created quite a lot of debate. And the reason it's created quite a lot of debate is people wonder how Jesus' action here that seems to suggest the disciples receive the Spirit at this point, how does that fit with what happens in Acts chapter 2 when the disciples receive the Spirit on the day of Pentecost? And some would look at these two events that are separated by time and say, well, well, does that mean that the Holy Spirit is given in stages to Christians so that perhaps we should be pursuing and praying for specific moments when we receive additional fillings of the Holy Spirit, perhaps accompanied by supernatural gifts? I don't think that is the way to understand Jesus' words and actions here. Because what we need to remember is that the Spirit is not first given to believers at Pentecost, but he is fully given to all believers on that day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So the Spirit's at work right through the Old Testament in different ways and different people, and the Spirit's at work right through the Gospels because people come to living faith in Christ. And how can they do that? Only because the Spirit is working in giving them a new heart so they can trust and believe and and know Christ as Savior and Lord. But in the Old Testament, in the prophecies there, you have this sense of more that is to come. You have this sense of a a, a fullness of the Spirit that will come to all believers. So he will be received in all his fullness. And that is what happens in Acts chapter 2. The fullness of the giving of the Spirit. And the way to understand Jesus' words and actions there in verse 22 is that they are pointing forward to Acts chapter 2 as a kind of an acted parable. He's he's pointing forward to this event that's going to come. And so, in a similar way that he did in John 13, in remember how he washed the disciples' feet at the start of his long 
teaching time with them there in the upper room. And, and why did he do that? He did that to point to the work on the cross he was going to do in washing their sins. So Jesus' words and actions here are kind of acted parable pointing forward to the Spirit coming in that fullness of Acts chapter 2. And he will come to enable Jesus' followers to fulfill the mission and calling that Christ has for them. And that is what we come to as we jump back to verse 21, where Jesus says again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So the risen Christ assures them of the coming of the Spirit, equips them for that task, and then commissions them to go and share this great message of peace with God. Just as the Father sent the Lord Jesus into the world to speak of reconciliation and the kingdom of God that would come into the human heart through faith, so Christ sends them to speak that same message. And then we move down to verse 23. There are a few tricky verses in this passage, aren't there? There's verse 22, the Spirit, and then we move to verse 23, and we see Jesus uh, speaking about what seems to be the disciples forgiving sins. Look down at what he says. He says, if you forgive anyone's sin, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, that cannot mean that the disciples get to determine what is right and wrong, what is, you know, what, what is right before God in that sense, in that ultimate sense, because that's only for God to do, isn't it? <laughs> Can't be that's their task. But what Jesus is pointing to in verse 23 is the amazing result of their declaration of the gospel message to the whole world which is that this gospel message of peace through the Lord Jesus brings real forgiveness. It brings real forgiveness when someone believes that in their hearts and trusts in Christ. So it's a promise that can be offered to any who will believe the message they carry, that if they believe their sins will really be forgiven, and then sadly, if someone doesn't believe this message, then there is no forgiveness. So that's a solemn thing to read, isn't it? End of verse 23. If, anyone, if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. What's the point there? What's being said there is if they don't believe this message, they are not forgiven. Because in rejecting Christ and this offer of peace, they have rejected the only possible means of forgiveness. And so only judgment remains. A solemn reminder that this is about eternity. But as we dwell together there on verse 23, this promise of forgiveness, I want us to see what a wonderful thing it is that we can hold that out in the gospel that God offers. We all love to give gifts, don't we? Think one of the most special things about giving a gift is seeing how someone receives something that they are really going to appreciate because they really need it. One of the privileges of being a giver, isn't it? You look at the face and they open it up and they see just how appropriate and needed and necessary and good that gift is. Well, just 
Think for a second. What's the best gift that you could give to someone? Well, you might say if someone's sick, the best thing I could give them would be healing. If someone is poor, the best thing we could give them might be financial security. If someone is lonely, the best thing we might be able to give them would be friendship and love. And all of those things are good. But in the message of the gospel, as the Lord's people, we can speak about something that is better than anything else. We can speak of how anyone who trusts in Christ can have a clear conscience before God. And there is nothing better than that, is there? There is nothing greater. And it's not us that are giving that because that's God's gift. But he uses us as his messengers to hold that forth so that real forgiveness is on offer. And some people carry such guilt that is with them all through their lives. And maybe as you're here this morning, that's you. Maybe you feel that real guilt because you carry that burden of something that you've done and you know it's wrong. And maybe no one else knows about it. Maybe you've moved to a different location so that you can get away from it. Maybe you try and put it out of your mind whenever you can, but it keeps on coming back. And you cannot shake it from your conscience because you know you've done wrong. Well, Jesus' words here mean that even the most corrupt person who has done the most horrible thing can be forgiven by God if they trust in Jesus Christ. If you find that impossible, or if you find that uncomfortable, then I put it to you, you've not understood what happened at the cross for those who believe. And if you want to know more of that, please speak to me afterwards, because at the cross, all the sin of those who will believe past, present, and future, is dealt with and done. That's the wonder of this message. So we've seen Jesus' disciples moving from fearful to joyful, and then we've seen them moving from being followers to be ambassadors. And notice that change comes about in them because they receive three great gifts from the Lord Jesus. They receive his peace through confidence and a completed sacrifice, because all is done. They receive his power through the Holy Spirit's enabling to go forth, and they receive this purpose of this calling to go and share this great message with the world. And those three things, the knowledge that I have peace with God, the promise that I have power in the gift of the Spirit, and the purpose and calling to go and make Christ known around the world, is what has motivated Christians to go and serve the Lord in the work of missions for centuries. And I just want us to dwell on that in, as we look at verses 21 to 23. Because many are commenting right now that there is a concerning pattern among Christians in the West. And it is that very few are stepping forward to serve God in some kind of full-time or, or part-time employed Christian service, particularly as we think about overseas missions. Now, we believe and teach as a church because we believe that God's Word is very clear that there is a, 
a, what we call a cultural mandate that every, every Christian is called to go and to fill the earth and subdue it and to do good and bring order and blessing to the world as a part of our service and worship to God. That is something that is for every Christian. So please do not think that the only way you can serve God is by going into some kind of Christian work. We can serve God in all of our callings as we bring glory to him in all that we do. And all that Rich reminded us of in his prayer about how we're called to be local ambassadors in making Christ known to our neighbors and friends and colleagues is all absolutely true and right. But let's not forget that God also calls some to give all of their working energies to Christian work in a whole range of ways. And he calls some to go overseas in that way, to go and make Christ known in places where he isn't known. God can do that for some as they leave education. God does that for some later in life when they have the opportunity to think again about how they might use their lives. And all I want to say here, and to remind all of us of this morning, is that we need to be sensitive to God's leading, and at least open to that as a possibility. I'm not convinced of everything that C.T. Studd believed or practiced. But in reading his biography recently, and I think I shared a bit about it last week, And reflecting on his life, there are times when I find his approach deeply challenging. As he left university and he looked at his life, he concluded that in the Lord's kindness, the Lord had provided for him financially so that that he didn't need to work. And he felt no particular calling to go and serve the Lord in a job or a profession that the Lord had laid on his life that would be um, that way of serving God in that sense. But he felt a great burden for missions and evangelism. And so he gave his life to serving God in that way. Now, when he told his family he wanted to do it, his wider family were opposed to it. They got him together. That's why they got him to come and talk to him and try to say, don't do it. But he felt that burden. They got some of his close friends to come and talk to him. And they said, don't do it. But he felt that burden. And God was calling him to go. And he went. And God greatly blessed his ministry. So I asked the question, could we be in danger as we see that pattern of fewer and fewer being going in that sense to full-time Christian work, either in this country or overseas? Is there a possibility that in all the complexities of financially planning for that, in all the complexities of life that I know are there, are we in danger of losing it as at least a possibility of a full-time calling? Is that something we're willing to consider at a key decision point in our lives? Perhaps when we leave education, perhaps when we have an opportunity for a career change, Perhaps when we take retirement or early retirement, that's an opportunity to to give to this in that sense and to think of this. I don't put it out there to press it home strongly to your hearts, friends. I put it out there to say, is this a possibility that we're not considering this?
Let us have it on our horizon because God calls some to go overseas in that sense to full-time missionary work. So we've seen that Jesus' resurrection moves us from fear to joy. It moves us from followers to ambassadors, and we're all ambassadors and some called to go in that full sense overseas ambassador. But now we turn to Jesus' encounter with Thomas, and we'll close in verses 24 to 31. And more briefly, we're going to see that Thomas' encounter shows us that Jesus' resurrection moves us, changes us from doubters to worshippers. Thomas doesn't know that the peace, the peace the other disciples now enjoy. And that was because he wasn't with the disciples when Jesus appeared to them there in verses 19 to 23. And though they testify to Thomas that they have seen the Lord, verse 25, he will not believe their testimony. And so they are troubled, so he is troubled with doubts and unbelief. As we look at verse 25, we see what it will take for Thomas to believe. He says he wants to meet with Christ and see the nail marks in his hands, to put his finger in them and put his hand in his side. It's quite a bar <laughs> he's setting, isn't it? Quite a bar. The words of his friends, I think we should say, would have been, should have been enough for him. Why would they lie? They have no incentive to do so. They were surprised at the resurrection. It wasn't something that they were expecting in that sense. And they saw the Lord Jesus. They knew it was him. But then Christ shows great grace to Thomas, doesn't he? And how thankful we can be that he does, because in doing so, we get another resurrection encounter with the Lord Jesus. So let's look at it together, because Jesus appears to him and his friends Verse 26, a week later, and he greets them there with the same words as he says, peace be with you. And then he turns to Thomas and he addresses his doubts. We need to understand, I think, carefully what Jesus is doing here. Jesus doesn't doesn't address Thomas's doubts in that specific sense to say that he will always do that for everyone in appearing to Thomas when he sets the bar high. He does so to show his power to us today. Because he shows his power not just in just... Well, not just, I shouldn't say that. What an... Sorry, what what a word. Not, Not he shows his power in being alive. And he shows his power in knowing exactly what Thomas asked for. It's really striking when you you trace it through. Because Thomas said, in order to believe, I need to do those three things and see those things. And Jesus addresses those requirements, his demands, we might say, in verse 27. Because Thomas had said, I need to see the nail marks in his hands. And what does Jesus say? See my hands. Thomas had said, I need to put my finger where the nails were. And what does Jesus say? Put your finger here. Thomas had said, I need to put my hand in his side. And what does Jesus say? Put your hand in my side. It's astonishing, isn't it? He wasn't, Jesus wasn't there as Thomas made the conditions, but he knows exactly what he said because of who he is. And Christ's 
resurrected presence in this transformed body which still by God's grace contains the marks of his suffering along with Christ's call to stop doubting and believe and along with Christ's power in in demonstrating how he knows exactly what Thomas had asked for leads to Thomas calling out in worship one of the most wonderful confessions of faith in all of scripture because what does he say my Lord and my God. We could spend weeks in those words, couldn't we? He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a a great prophet. He's Lord and God. And he's not just a detached teacher and he's not just a, a, a detached Lord, a detached God. No. What is he? My Lord. My God. And friends, that is how we need to respond to the Lord Jesus Christ today and every day. That should be our confession of faith. Because whilst Thomas's doubt and unbelief is not a good pattern for us, his confession of faith is a wonderful example for us to follow. And that is what we come to as we come to verses 29 to 31. Because in verses 29 to 31, we are told that we have received the testimony of the signs that point to who Jesus is. This great summary, we'll come back to, we read from verse 29, Jesus said to them, because you have seen me, he told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then we come to this, a wonderful summary of the purpose of John's gospel that wraps up the whole book for us, but also drives home the implication of what's going on with Thomas. Because we read this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is a Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we today haven't seen the resurrected Christ, but we have all the eyewitness testimony to the life of Jesus and what is, we think, the seventh great sign in John's gospel, the resurrection of Jesus in those who have seen him back from the dead. And we are to respond to all of that testimony with belief and repentance. And if we do that, we are promised something that we will not find anywhere else in the whole universe. Life in his name. Life now, because we know God and we know that joy of peace with God. And life for eternity, because heaven is before us as those who believe. And friends, that is how Jesus' resurrection should affect all of us here today. That if we will look at the signs, if we will consider all that is here and follow where they point, then we can move by God's grace to become worshippers, though we might have once been doubters. And so as we come to close, let me say two things 
as we come to a close. Firstly, this interaction with Thomas and then the implications there for we who believe show us that God has given us enough that we might believe. You know, sometimes we can be a bit like Thomas because we can impose our own conditions about what it will take for us to believe. Maybe you've said or you've heard someone said, if God will just show me he is real, I'll believe. Or if, if, if the Lord Jesus just appeared to me in the flesh, then I would believe. But those words in verses 30 and 31 tell us that the signs and the testimony here in John's gospel are enough. Faith is not a jump in the dark. Faith is grounded upon reasons. And God knows the evidence you need in order to trust both in your head and in your heart in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has given us sufficient reasons to believe that Jesus is a Messiah, the Son of God, and he has recorded them specifically in John's Gospel. So it is not for us to impose our own conditions, but it is rather for us to dig deeply into what God has given us in this Gospel and in his Word. You know, one phrase that um, we've used a lot as parents over the years is, mum and dad know best. Because those who know us better than anyone in the world know what we need to have to eat, know how much sleep we need, and know lots of other things beside. The God of heaven knows us better than our parents. He made every one of you here this morning. The Bible says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. He knows your mind. He knows your will. He knows your heart. And he knows exactly what to show you that would be enough that you might find life in Christ by believing in his name. Will you look at it? I thought we had three copies of John's Gospel left as a church. But I found a whole box of them in Heath Terrace on Thursday this week. Here's one. There are some on the way out. Please take one and read it. Weigh up the evidence. Find life in Jesus. That's my challenge to you this morning. God has given us enough. And then, secondly, I just want us to dwell in our hearts there upon verse 29. Because in that verse, Jesus says, if you have believed, you are blessed. You know, Christ commands the faith of those who have believed based upon the signs that he gives in this gospel. And he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that describes every Christian from those first followers who saw Christ risen from the dead. 
You are blessed if you believe. That's, Peter puts it like this in 1 Peter. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You are blessed if you believe. You know, and some people look on at Christians and they say, well, I pity you because they think we're believing a lie that stops us enjoying the pleasures of this world. Other people look on and say, well, you're gullible because you've bought into the biggest conspiracy ever. You've not seen Jesus risen from the dead. How can you take the words of others for this? But let me just remind you, friends, that we haven't believed a lie, have we? Because everything we have seen as we have worked through John's gospel points to how strong the evidence is for what we believe. And we have not missed out. Because the greatest joy there is, is to know Jesus Christ. And the joy that is in Christ is so much greater and deeper than any joy or pleasure of this world. So whatever people might say, let us listen to the words of our Savior above everything else. Because what does Christ say about you? He says you are blessed. Because you have received the testimony, because you have looked at the signs, you have gone to where they have led, and you have believed in the Lord Jesus in your mind, in your heart, in your will. And I don't know about you, but I would take Christ's words of blessing above anything this world might say about me. Because he is my Lord, and he is my God.